Dear Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for your many blessings, blessings which we have just received today by your grace. We, like the blind man in John's gospel this morning, have received spiritual sight from you, and we're so thankful for that. Help us as we continue to grow in our knowledge of faith and service to you as we study your word and the history of your church, and help us to go out and do as he did and bear witness about you and your glory. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so uh, before we hop into uh, the wonderful world of Daniel 7 through 12, which I'm sure for all of you is the clearest sections of scripture you've ever read, um, where I wanted to show last time we were talking about uh, first century uh, baptisms and some baptismal fonts. I wanted to show you some pictures of baptismal fonts. Uh, so here is one here. Um, you can see very ornate. This is actually in the floor. Okay, and then you have um, this one here, which is discovered in the ruins of a baptistry outside of a church. So you go in one side and are baptized in the bottom, and then you come out the other. Right, so um, kind of reinforcing the imagery of a dying of the old creation, a rising of the new. Um, and so <clears throat> that's a little bit... Kind of like what we would have would have happened in the description that I read from the book last uh, last week. At least I think it was last week. I don't know what day it is anymore. Um, here's kind of a more standard one that you would be familiar with in a church. Obviously, a little bit uh, bigger and more ornate. Um, and then there's another example of oh, went too far. This one here. Um, so you'll notice some similarity in the imagery for these uh, these more modern-looking ones. They all have eight sides, uh, and the eight sides are representing uh, the eighth day of creation, which is the first day of the new creation in Easter, and you're baptized into the Easter reality, right? That's your your new life is being you're drowning to the sin and the death of Jesus. You're united to death, the death of Jesus, and then you're rising to new life. Uh, so that's signified by the eight sides there. Uh, okay, so I just wanted to show some of those to you. I ran out of time last time. So, um, Okay, so for this time, we're going to continue our discussion on the entrance rite, um, which is the, the movement part of the service that's leading up to the service of the word, which, of course, its climax is the reading of the gospel. Okay, so but before we hop into that, we got to cover Daniel 7 through 12. Does anybody have any questions at all on Daniel 7 through 12? Do you read through it and you're like... Crystal clear, understood everything. Can you yeah. explain Daniel 7 through 12? <laughs> <laughs> 1 through 6 was a lot easier. Yeah, 1 yeah. through 6 is pretty easy. Once you hit 7, things get a little weird. Okay, so I actually have a picture to help us understand a little bit of this. Um, it was hard to find one that wasn't covered with dispensationalist stuff. Um, this one is, is fairly decent. Uh, so you have the book of Daniel, and if you remember from Nebuchadnezzar's initial dream, he dreams of the statue with a gold head. Um, I can't remember all the, what's the chest? I can't, with silver, silver chest, bronze uh, waist, and then iron legs, and then iron and clay feet, right? And so these are all, we believe, to be references to the coming kingdoms after Babylon. Uh, so current the current kingdom and the, the vision is Babylon, which is, represented with the gold uh, and then when we get to chapter 7 in Daniel you have the four beasts right you have uh, the lion with the wings the bear that has ribs in its mouth uh, the leopard with four wings uh, and then you have uh, their best rendition of what the heck the last beast is okay the last beast is not really described it's just described as terrifying beyond the others okay um, and then the corresponding uh, kingdoms on earth that go with those images and the prophecies. So the, the winged lion is Babylon. The bear with ribs in its mouth is Persia. Um, and the reason that that one is, uh, we, we think that one is Persia, is because it's explicit in the scriptures that God uses Cyrus the Great to take over Babylon to facilitate the return of his people to Israel, or to Jerusalem. Right, And so in that vision, somebody tells the bear to go forth and eat flesh right so that's understood that god is sending the bear right the persian empire to conquer its surrounding kingdoms 
and the scriptures reference Cyrus as the deliverer of God's people in Babylon, and then he releases them to go back to Jerusalem to worship their God. Okay, uh, Greece is the the Greece Empire under Alexander the Great is a leopard with four wings. So the four wings signify speed, and uh, Alexander the Great was nothing if not fast. So he conquers the largest known empire in the world to that point in about ten years. Um, so he just sweeps through wipes out Persia, and then of course he dies not long after, and you get the references in those prophecies for the four different kings. He, his empire divides into four pieces. Uh, most people know like the Ptolemies and the Seleucids, but there's four of them, and they fight amongst themselves. And then of course the last beast, which is not identified, but terrifying and has uh, teeth like iron, or claws like iron, and then it has ten horns, and one horn that comes up from it that displaces the other horns that talks great things, right? And the great things that it talks is it's opposing God openly and, and talking about him that way. Um, that's seen as an image for the Antichrist. Uh, the, the little horn is the Antichrist. Um, so you have Rome. So initial Rome. And what does Rome do? Rome, um, during the time of Rome, is when Jesus comes, right? And he does his great act of deliverance. But Rome also destroys Jerusalem completely in AD 70. Right? So they're seen as kind of the greatest and worst of the kingdoms. Um, and then during that time is when you have Antiochus, who is a really terrible king, uh, who actively, he's sort of the precursor of the Antichrist. His form foreshadows the kind of form the Antichrist would take, which is that. He's not just a king, but he declares himself God, and he actively tries to destroy the religion and worship of the true God. Right? So he puts, we don't know exactly what he put in the temple in Jerusalem, but he puts, we think, a temple, of, like a, a statue of himself or of Zeus or something, an abomination that brings desolation. You heard that those two words in there uh, in your reading. Um, and then, of course, there's Christ, the, the stone that crushes the feet of the statue. So Christ obviously conquers uh, all these kingdoms these earthly kingdoms to establish uh, eventually right the universal kingdom but now we're in the time of the church the age of the church which is between that the end of uh, the roman empire and then the revived roman empire is what they're calling it but that's essentially the arrival of the antichrist uh, whatever that form takes and then the time of tribulation and then the second coming right so we don't uh i we don't have time to go into all the details because we can do, and if you want to, I can do a Bible study on Daniel in the fall or next spring um, because there's a lot to unpack here. Uh, but we are what are called amillennialists as Lutherans. So there's there's a number of different views of end times. There's postmillennialists, premillennialists, and then there's dispensationalists um, who are within those three categories. We're not dispensationalists, so we don't take the numbers literally, basically is what that means. We believe that the time of the kingdom of God on earth is the time of the church which we're living in now. So it's not a literal thousand years. But there are a lot of Christians who believe in the literal thousand year reign of God on earth. And then there's a thousand year time where the devil uh, is in charge of things. It gets a little confusing and I haven't, haven't prepared all that stuff. Uh, but if you want to go into like basically end times theology, because that's what Daniel touches on here. Uh, in more depth, we can do that in a separate Bible study. Um, so that's not really for here. But that I wanted to give you that kind of as an overall sketch um, to talk about the prophecies that Daniel's foreseeing are both um, upcoming historical earthly events, kingdoms, um, and the main, what is the main theme? Did we pick up on the main theme here of all these different visions? What is being established by God? His control. His control, right? His sovereignty, his kingdom. So all of these earthly kingdoms are under the control of God, and they rise and fall at his whim, right? And eventually, whose kingdom remains? His. And his is an everlasting kingdom. It doesn't, it doesn't rise and fall like the others, okay? So that's the big theme. And if you are confused or concerned about anything you read, don't worry, you're in good company. Daniel was alarmed, at his own visions and his face changed colors as as the text says right um, because he was a little scared of what was what he saw and what does the angel tell daniel that he's beloved 
He does tell him he's beloved, but he gives him instructions on how to deal with because Daniel doesn't so really seal, know what it is. Write it down and seal it up. He seals it up, right? And he essentially says, don't get lost in idle speculation. Right? Rather, do the things of God to which you know you should be doing. So don't become obsessed with interpreting when these things are going to happen and why and how, but rather do the things that God has given you to do. Okay? Um, that's our basic approach to apocalyptic literature. There's a lot of symbolism there, which is why it gets confusing. Uh, but also, uh, I can just give you this, this one piece of uh, advice from the scriptures that will help serve you if you ever are tempted to be ensnared by this stuff. Jesus says that he himself does not know the day or the hour, which means that if anyone claims to know, they're automatically a liar. Don't listen to them or follow them anywhere. Don't give them your money. Don't buy an RV and go to some random place in the United States or on the globe. Um, they're a liar because they don't know. Right? Um, and it's, it's not gonna, it's not gonna be known. Okay. So, any other specific questions about Daniel seven through twelve? Okay. I do have a question. Okay. My my commentary identifies the Antichrist as the papacy is are Lutherans the only ones who do that or is that a kind of a Protestant view of that reference so um, the question was the commentary that Janine was reading identifies the Pope as the Antichrist uh, and is that only the Lutherans that do that or is that a general Protestant thing um, it's not even I don't think it's a largely Protestant thing but I'm not 100% sure on that. I'd have to okay. look that up. I haven't. I didn't do a lot of apocalyptic research at this point um, for this class since it's not really about Daniel. Um, this is just my ploy to get you to read the Bible. Um, so, um, and uh, but that the, one of the reasons that's considered is you'll you notice even in Daniel, there's a lot of effort gone to basically say that this this fourth kingdom is unlike the others. And so one of the thinkings about identifying the office of the Pope with the Antichrist was that the kingdom established through it was not like the Greeks and the Medes and the Persians and the Babylonian empires, because it wasn't based on military conquest explicitly and just a worldly power. It was claiming to be sort of a mix of things. Like the Holy um, Roman Empire that wasn't holy, wasn't Roman, and wasn't an empire? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So there's there's some... I there are even There were even pictures where people were identifying that the kingdom of clay and iron was like the uh, American Indo-European empires. Yes. I mean, there's all kinds of strange... There's all kinds of strange like interpretations of what people think all those different things are. Uh, so, as Lutherans, our general guide is we go with what's clear from the scriptures, and the stuff that's not clear, I would advise you to listen to the angel who speaks to Daniel and says, don't get lost in speculation about things you do not know, rather do the things of which you do know that God wants you to do. So, yeah. If, if anybody's interested in having a discourse on eschatology and end time stuff, I would be happy to, and we can both come with books, and we'll <laughs> read about it. Okay. Uh, so quick review, we talked about invocation and baptism uh, as a part of the service of preparation. We're entering into the presence of God. <clears throat> so uh, the invocation of baptism is a reminder of the sacrifice that makes us holy. Our holiness comes from Christ. Our holiness is given to us by Christ in our baptism. Only holy people can be in the presence of a holy God. Right? And so that's, how, that's why that's at the beginning of the service. Um, then we have the confession and absolution, which concludes the service of preparation. Uh, we're dealing with the elephant in the room and the cleansing of our sin uh, by, giving, by the given authority for the office, the apostolic office of ministry, to forgive sins as if they're speaking from, as if Christ is speaking to you. Okay? We talked about that last week with like the king's messenger, right? The messenger has the authority to speak as if he's the king only about the things which the king gives him, right? And so. The pastor is able to say, I forgive you all of your sins because he is a called and ordained servant and he's saying that in the stead and by the command of the king. Okay, any, any questions about that before we go off? Just want to do a little recap. Okay, so uh, now we're getting into the entrance rite. 
So on your handout, you'll see that the entrance right um, develops in a new period of history. So this is post uh, the edict from um, Constantine about making Christianity a religion that's no longer persecuted. So basically, uh, big deal, right? If, if you're a Christian in public life, before that, you could just be killed um, because you were violating Roman law. And now that's changed. Uh, and as a result, things grow. The church grows. The church buildings grow. Uh, it was common to have large basilicas that held thousands of people. And so if you imagine going from a house church where you welcome somebody at your door and then you walk into a room, it probably takes you all of three seconds just to take some steps and get where you're going to be. Um, in a basilica that can hold thousands of people. How many of you have been to a big cathedral in Europe or anything like that? Right. So how long do you think it would take to get from the very back to the front? Unless, you, I mean, if you're, if you're not running... Minutes. minutes, right? So it's not, it's a different space. And so some of these parts of the service that are related to the movements from the key parts, which is the word in the sacrament, which is present from the beginning, um, are developed over time for practical reasons, as well as theological reasons. And that's what we're going to go into today. So before we get into that, though, we got we to gotta learn a couple of basic categories for understanding uh, Christian worship and the liturgy. So the first category is called an ordinary so there are ordinaries and there are propers in Christian worship. And so we're going to learn what those two terms are. So an ordinary are the liturgical texts that are the response of the people to God's work in the divine service. This is like the Kyrie, which we sang today, the Gloria, which we sang today, uh, Sanctus and Agnus Dei, the Creed and the Lord's Prayer. So these are the things that are ordinarily in the service. That's why they're called ordinary. And they're there for a couple of purposes. One is the, the language is the language of the scriptures spoken back to God. So it's a reverent way of praising God for the things that he's done. Right? So in the Kyrie, it's a cry of mercy, which we'll go into more detail. Uh, Lord, have mercy. Right? That's in the scriptures all over the place. Right? And so we as God's people are making that cry for peace. The other reason is... It is uniting the group of people who were before this point individuals. So individually you were baptized, individually you've received the forgiveness of your sins. Now we are coming together as the body of Christ. So one of the ways to facilitate that shift from the individual to the one body unity of the church is we all know the same stuff. Right? And so the, the shift to this singing of something that we all know signifies that move from the individual to the unified body of Christ gathered in worship. So that's one. Uh, it unites us in spirit and intention. The other is um, more practical, which is it's formative. So uh, if you're going to establish a habit, what's the conventional wisdom about how long that takes? 14 days. Seven times, right? Or some people will say 21 days, I think is one I've heard too, right? Um, what does it mean? What, what, what do we call something when you do it more than once? You, how did, what did you do to the action? You repeated, repeated it, right? Now, repeat, repetition has gotten a bad rap since I, in my lifetime. Um, it's been viewed as kind of the old school way of learning stuff. But it's really, if you look at all the aspects of your life, it's just the way you learn, right? Um, you don't get up, like we talked about this, routines, like everybody has routines during the day. You repeat your routines. There's some variation, but there are certain parts that are the same, right? Because we need that sort of sameness in order to be formed into the people that we are, right? Uh, who's a, a Penn State fan? All right. So do you have certain rituals or things you do when you watch a game or go to a game that are the same every time? Or maybe I should ask your spouses if you have rituals. <laughs> Right? You probably wear something, right? And you probably don't change the kind of thing you wear. It's always got like the school colors and maybe the logo of the school and all that kind of stuff, right? So repetition is just an inevitable fact of human life, right? It's the way that we learn things, the way that a group of people can learn the same thing is by doing it over and over again. So that's the purpose of the ordinaries in a service. So uh, the best way to think of this is imagine you went to a church and you know the Kyrie. And they have the Kyrie in the service. And when that part starts, you're the only person singing. How would you feel about that? 
That would be weird, right? And it would be weird because we're all supposed to know the stuff that's happening, right? That's why we're all here, presumably. So if I'm the only one singing, are we unified? No. no. And I clearly know something that nobody else knows, and presumably if a whole community doesn't know it, then they don't think that it's worth knowing, right? So these ordinaries in the service are so that you can be unified in spirit and in intention. Okay, that's part of that process so that we can all learn the same stuff. And as you'll see as we go through some of these individual pieces, we are taking the words of these things that we sing or say from songs or statements that the church are, are attributed to the church in the scriptures and in eternal visions, right? So the Sanctus comes from Isaiah's vision of what the angels in heaven are singing around the throne of God, along with the multitude of people. So that's us. So we should be singing that stuff, right? And so that's kind of where some of these things are established. Um, so obviously the church has been arguing in recent times over the balance of repetitive formation versus variety. And maybe some of you grew up in a church where they did the same exact divine service setting every week for 40 years without taking a break, the exact same musical settings, and all that kind of stuff. And you decided that you would rather die than continue <laughs> to do that, okay? Um, one, I would encourage you not to be that dramatic. Obviously, if you can work some change in there to say, like, hey, I don't want to affect the core of what we're doing nor introduce things that's going to disrupt the congregation, but can we get a little mix-up in here? Is there a way to do that? So the new hymnals that we'll be getting has five, they have five different settings for the divine service for that reason, which is the most that any of our hymnals have ever had. So like a small church that doesn't have a lot of resources or doesn't have people that can play different kinds of instruments, they can have variety in their services and they will just rotate those, right? Um, so that's kind of the balance that, that goes on here with the ordinaries and the propers. So the second thing are the propers and propers are the parts of the service that change depending on the Sunday of the church or calendar. So those are things like the intro, which we did today, which is based on a psalm. There's the prayer of the day, the gradual, the hymns and songs, all the music fall into this category, um, regardless of what year it was written or what instrument it's played on. The psalms and the readings and the sermon. Right? So those are the things that change from week to week. Right? We don't read the same three readings every Sunday. Right? We don't have the same psalm reading or the same intro. We don't sing all the same songs every week, right? Why do we not do the same stuff there? It would be boring. Well, one, it would be boring, but looking for like a theological reason. What? Well, God wants to say different things to us. Yeah. 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 yeah, the Bible's kind of a pretty big book, isn't it? Yeah. Right? God has a lot to say. And we can't cover it all at once, right? And in our worship, all of the stuff that, that changes is based on the scriptures, whether it's the music, whether it's the readings, whether it's the sermon, right? And you evaluate all of those pieces according to God's word. So if they're not supporting what God's word says, whether it's the sermon or the music or the whatever, then it shouldn't be in there. Yeah? Different times of the church here, too. You're different celebrating. Different times of the church year, right? So we're actually in the period here, um, the imperial period on your hand out there, is when this the lectionary and the sort of ritual of the propers of the church is beginning to take its form. Okay. Um, prior to this, and even still now, um, people who are in my new member class will know this, but the rest of you guys maybe wouldn't. Uh, how long do you think the service of the word, just that part of the service, was in the early church? Somebody said one hour. Anybody else? Days. Days? <laughs> All right. So we got an hour of days. Anybody in between there? In between? All right. That was the same, but in between. Yeah, it's in between. Uh, the service of the word, just that part of the service was usually two hours. And you stood the whole time. So it's two hours because most people in the early church couldn't read. So the only way they heard the scriptures was when they gathered in worship and it was read aloud. And so often in the new, in the new church... They would read like all the letters of Paul in one sitting, right? And it, but it makes sense because at that day, it was very difficult and expensive to get scrolls and it took a long time because somebody had to hand scribe that. You couldn't just go to your computer and hit copy, right? And most people couldn't read. 
So how else are they going to know the teachings of Jesus other than to hear them spoken? Right? So obviously we don't do that today because that's based on the assumption that you are reading your Bible. Right? One of the seven copies you have in your house, you're reading it with some regularity. Right? And part of the crisis, I believe, of the modern day church is that assumption is proven to not be correct. We no longer read the word of God for two hours in church because we assume you're reading it, but a lot of people are not reading it. So many people who go to church, even people who go to church for a long time, don't know much of the scriptures. And our God works with revelation. So if he hasn't revealed himself to you and you haven't been paying attention, you just can't know him. right? Um, and so that's why the word is such a big thing for us right? and why it's the root for all the other things. Um, now, I know there's... A, a, if you are reading your Bible, don't be offended that I made that generalization. Because I'm clearly not talking about you. Right? But my encouragement to you is read your Bible. That's the way our relationship with God works as he reveals himself to us. We can't know him any other way. Right? That's what happened with the blind man in our John 9 account today. He's not going to be able to know who Jesus is or know anything about him until Jesus sees him and finds him and heals him and does stuff to him and for him. And that's what he's doing for you. And that's what is doing in the divine service. So the propers offer that variety and they follow the church year. Now, why was the church year established, do you think? Well, there was a, a, a seasonality to the way uh, temple and synagogue readings were done. So yep. I, thought, I figured it just sort of followed suit. It does. So the early part is based off of uh, we, a lot of our roots in worship are from Judaism, quite um, logically. Um, so a lot of the synagogue stuff is stuff that we inherited. So like the service, the word, and the reading of the word of God in the presence of the people, that's, that's very, very old. Um, and that's, you know, basically around since Moses, because that's what Moses would do. He would just do it verbally because God had spoken to him. And then later on when it gets written down, it's done um, out loud from what's written. So this is just kind of a picture. Uh, there's another bigger picture in the fireside room next to the whiteboard if you want to take a closer look. Um, and you'll see there's different colors to signify the different seasons. So you may have noticed that when you're in church, sometimes the pyramids on the, which are the cloths that cover the altar or the, and the pulpit are different colors. That's why it's signifying different changes of the seasons. But why do we have to rotate that around? Why do we have the different seasons? advent we're waiting for him and then that's what they are why do we do that yeah for me it's repetition it takes a lot of years to keep going through that cycle okay so there's there's repetition there right so we do the lectionary uh where there's repetition but it also gives you the variety that's needed in order so that you can the church can do its best to give you the whole counsel of god right um, so that's why when we have, when it's Christmas season, what are the readings about? They're about Christmas things, right? Um, and when it's Lent, what are the readings about? They're about Lenten things, the, the journey to Holy Week and the cross and all that good stuff, okay? So, um, so this was done in order to cover all the things, the basic teachings, the basic counsel of God that the church needs, right? So it's developed over time for very practical purposes. Now, when we look back, it just seems like some, some dudes got into a room and wrote some stuff down and gave it to the church, and now the church just does it. That's really not the way most of this stuff works. Right? It's slowly built over time until people are like, oh, well, there's a bunch of people in our church that don't know anything about this element of Jesus' ministry, uh, and we think that's really important. How can we incorporate that in the service? And then over time, the church decides on a regular way to do that, and then they just repeat it. And we do this with, with, you do this in your families, kids learn this kind of stuff in school, you repeat things, but you have, the, you have a lot of stuff to cover, and so you come up with different ways to do that. So those are the ordinaries and propers. Anybody have any questions about those two dynamics? Okay. All right, and both, uh, both are rooted in the word. So it's actually, uh, if you want to do this next Sunday, there's a quote in the introduction of the Blue Hymnals, so you have one Sunday to do it before they're gone, um, that illustrates kind of this relationship between the Word of God and these parts of the service. 
And it was on the first week handout that I gave you. So if you want a copy of that, just email me and let me know. Um, but here's what it says. And this was written by Norman Nagel, who was a professor in St. Louis. Our Lord speaks and we listen. His word bestows what it says. Faith that is born from what is heard acknowledges the gifts received with eager thankfulness and praise. Music is drawn into this thankfulness and praise, enlarging and elevating the adoration of our gracious giver God. Saying back to him what he has said to us, we repeat what is most true and sure. The rhythm of our worship is from him to us and then from us back to him. He gives his gifts and together we receive and extol them. We build one another up as we speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We are heirs of an astonishing, rich tradition. Each generation receives from those who went before, and in making that tradition of the divine service its own, adds what best may serve in its own day, the living heritage and something new. So both of those aspects of our service, while one is repetitive and one gives you the variety, are grounded in the word of God, because that is what is most sure and true. And so you'll notice... Uh, if you kept your bulletin from upstairs, if you open it, you'll be able to see there's scripture references next to all those different pieces for that reason, to let you know that I didn't make these things up. I don't sit in my office every week and write the responses for the service. They come from the scriptures because that's the whole authority by which this whole enterprise is based on that we call the church. Okay, now the entrance right. So this develops after the... Uh, the Edict of Innocence in 311 AD by Emperor Constantine, which allows uh, Christian worship to become public worship. Um, and it's used to gather the worship and, uh, and approach the presence of God with reverence. So that more singing and ritual develops at this time simply because it's needed to fill the space. Right. So we talked about the larger churches and you have larger gatherings of people. And so things start to develop in order to bring these movements to bear. Now, if you flip over to the back side of the handout I gave you, you can see the basic structure of Christian worship for, for this period of time. Now, we still have our two squares, which are the two keys of the worship service. And it's important that those remain the two keys. Okay? And one of the reasons that's important is there are still some people that can't do this stuff even today. Right? If you are a missionary country and you just established a church, how many resources do you likely have? Not many. You maybe don't even have access to a hymnal that's written in your own language. So how can you worship God? All you need is the word and the sacrament. That's why like Lutheran Bible translators is a big thing in our synod because we want to translate the word of God into as many languages as possible so that people can worship in spirit and truth, right? And then you have the sacraments. All you need is bread and wine, okay? So it's important that that has to remain the key because the kind of worship that you see in a lot of our churches in the United States it can't happen in certain places. We have microphones and instruments. We have people that have practiced those instruments for years and years. You don't always have that when you're starting a church. So the church has to be about something deeper than those accessorizing things. And those accessorizing things are important, and they enhance the adoration of God and our, our joyous response to the gifts he's giving. Right? Um, but you'll see that the parts that develop here in the circles are all parts of movement. They're the movement to and from or to transition from one to the other of these key elements. So the entrance rite is part of the entry there. Then you have the preparation, which is between the word moving to the sacrament. And then you have the actual distribution of communion, the singing, and the benediction. Those are the essential pieces that develop at this time. Okay? Um, so these large basilicas, this was used to bring people into the worship space and get everybody ready for worship. So this is kind of where we're, what we're talking about today. So um, often what would happen is the gathered congregation would start chanting and singing psalms before the service would begin. So there would be a cantor who would lead them in the singing of psalms. And the singing of psalms is a very old tradition. It comes from Judaism. Um, there's a number of psalms in, in the book of psalms that were written for people to sing while they were traveling to Jerusalem. Right? And so it's very fitting for Christians to sing psalms as they're traveling to the place where God dwells among his people, which now is, of course, uh, the church where his people gather. So they would sing until um, the, the, the principal actors, um, the, the clergy and their assistants were ready, and then it would be marked often with a procession. Now what's really interesting is the procession stuff. A lot of it that we now view as ornate, again, is just developed practically. 
So imagine being in a room with thousands of people and you want to get all of their attention at once. What are you going to need? You're going to need some visual cue that everybody can see. So they would put a cross on top of a large stick. So what we now call the processional cross was developed so everybody could see it. And then you also would have people swinging incense because even with a, a cross raised up, if you're in a room with thousands of people, there's probably pillars holding up a building of that size and not everybody could see it. But the smell would be another cue that the service was moving to its next stage. Right? Um, and scripturally speaking, incense is something that God says is a pleasing aroma to him and all those sorts of things. Right? Um, so so those, are, those things, it's just sort of interesting when you learn the history, you think it just sort of changes the shape of what those are done for and why they're done. Um, so there's a visual cue and then a sensory cue with the smells, um, with the incense. And then during that procession is when the singing of the psalm would shift from the psalms to the Kyrie. Okay. Uh, the Kyrie, in its original form, was just a simple, Lord, have mercy. That's, that's what that, that means. Kyrie is, Lord, have mercy, right? Uh, and it develops into its current litany form over time, um, but fairly early on. Uh, <clears throat> so, um, and why would they shift from the Psalms to the Kyrie before formal worship begins? Keeping in mind our ordinaries and properest distinction. Um, no, the Lord have mercy is not an actual is not actually a, a confessional cry. Um, good idea though. And we'll we'll get into that um, here in a little bit. So the ordinaries are there to bind everybody together in the unity of worship, and so the shift to the curia would happen because everybody knows the curia. So the whole congregation can cry out and prepare for the arrival of the king, who's about to come in his word. Okay. Um, so the shifting of the Kyrie, again, also practically, it's another shift to the service is about to begin. So some of the ways you may have gone to a church that will do this is everybody's talking and gabbing before the service starts. There's usually some sort of cue that the people who are going to be leading parts of the service will do in order to let everybody know, hey, we're about to start. So quit your yapping and take a seat, right? Um, so that you don't have to go up to every individual person and say, hey, hey, we're starting, can you sit down? Hey, hey, we're starting, can you sit down? Right, there's some sort of cue. So, so a lot of these are cues for people to, that we're moving to the next, the next part here. Any questions on that so far? Okay, so the Kyrie, which is, uh, referred, is referred to as a common practice of the Christian church really about the fifth century, so uh, the 400s is when it's largely confirmed and written about as if everybody knows what they're talking about when they refer to it. So it's likely practiced earlier than that, but it becomes the common practice of the whole church in the 5th century. Um, and essentially what this is, the Kyrie is, the king is coming. So you think of Kyrie, think of king, and you say, Lord, have mercy. This was a common practice when the king would come to town. Somebody would say, Lord, have mercy, which is why when people start to view Jesus as the Christ... When he comes to town, what do they say to Jesus? Lord. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Lord, have mercy on me, right? Um, and the reason this practice was done, it was to express a petitionary desire for the things that the king brings, right? Um, safety, protection, and peace. And so the Kyrie is a prayer of peace. So the Lord have mercy is not a, a confessional cry, but it's a petitionary cry for the gifts of the king because the king is coming to town. Okay, <clears throat> um, so it's biblically founded as well. Jesus was, was received in this manner. So in Luke 17, verse 13, uh, that's the parable, or the parable, the, uh, the healing of the, the 10 lepers. And what do they say when they say Jesus from far off? They say, Jesus, Lord, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Right? Um, and then you have, again, in... Uh, Luke 18, and then in Mark 10, and Mark 10 is the scripture reference you'll see in the bulletin uh, for this part of the service, and that is blind, the blind beggar at the Jericho Gate, or blind Bartimaeus, and when he hears that Jesus is coming to town, he says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Right? He cries out so much, everybody's telling him to shut up, right? because the king is coming to town, and, he, and he's ready to receive him. Okay, uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, the earliest form became a, is a simple, we all would just say or sing, Lord have mercy. 
the litany form develops uh, later on. And here's an example of that. So, and you guys will, when I read this, you'll recognize it. In peace, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. For the peace from above and for our salvation, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. For the peace of the whole world, for the well-being of the church of God, and for the unity of all, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. For this holy house and for all who offer here their worship and praise, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. Help, save, comfort, and defend us, gracious Lord. Amen. So that form is largely developed early on, 5th, 6th centuries, um, and we still use that form today. And what's the word that's most often repeated by the pastor, not the people, the pastor? What's the primary thing you're thankful to the king for? Forgiveness. Not forgiveness. Mercy. Not mercy. That not just you're you're thinking of king too narrowly in the sense of Jesus. I just mean king in general. Or, or whom? Huh? Peace. Peace. Because all the things you listed are specific to the Christian king, but a general king, the primary thing he brings to the common people is peace. Right? Security, because the world's a scary place, right? Um, so even the you know some of the kings we mentioned in those kingdoms, they provide security and peace for their people, right? And so our prayer of peace, our cry for mercy, is because the king is coming. I I just realized what you were saying about the, the king on the earth and like the king. Yeah. So we were in the wrong uh, place. Yeah, but there's but there's there's overlap there because essentially the the reason that that significant connection is a lot of the practices that we adopted into the church were initially pagan practices, and this was one of those examples where this used to be the way that the Roman king would be greeted or the emperor would be greeted or an earthly king, and we have a king, and he's not of this earth, but he brings us all those things and more, all the things you guys mentioned, forgiveness and grace and and, and mercy, right? Um, and so that's how we're beginning here. Okay, uh, the next part is the hymn of praise. So today, probably for the first time, I think for the first time since I've been here, we did the Gloria and Excelsis, which is a little rough for a couple of reasons. One, we've never sung it before, so you guys were learning it, uh, as was I. And I don't know that version. That's the Lutheran worship version. I, I knew the LSB version, um, which is probably what we'll go with. But, but there were a couple of parts in it musically that were very nice. Right? Um, but how old do you think that one is? Just take a guess. Throw out a century. Huh? 800 years. Okay, someone says 800 years. Somebody else got another one? Isn't it like from Luke? Huh? Isn't the... the, the well, the practice of singing it in a, oh, in a Christian okay. service. All of this stuff comes from the scriptures, so it's old in that sense, but for practice in the worship service. we got 800 years. You guys think that that's correct? Or got any other guesses? No idea? Okay. It's older than that. So the earliest usages of this was 3rd century. It's pretty common practice by 4th century. 4th century is 300s. So if you do your math, that's about 17 centuries. Right. So this is, this is an old practice of the church. Uh, so if you go to a Christian church in, in most of the places in the world, they'll sing this. Right. Um, they'll sing it in their own language, but they'll sing it. Right. So I lived in Germany for a year. And when I went to Germany, whether this was smart or not, well, I don't know, I didn't know any German, and my classes were going to be in German, and all the worship services I went to were in German. Um, how lost do you think I was? Pretty lost. But you know the place I was least lost? Was at church. Because even though I didn't understand the individual words that were being spoken in all the different places, I could follow the order of the worship service, and I knew when they were saying certain things. So I could read them along, understanding what I was reading and saying, even though I didn't understand the words. Right? And that had a profound impact to me on a pastor because I wasn't sure if I was going to be called to a church that had multiple languages present. And if there were multiple languages present, that experience convinced me we're not leaning towards the variety side. Because if we lean towards the variety side, they will never feel home in the service. If everything's changing and it's their second language, 
forget about it, right? Um, and if you've ever been in a situation where you're listening to people talk in a language you don't know, you, you would understand the feeling, yeah. Yeah, I had the same experience in the backwoods of the Dominican Republic in services, where of course they're in Spanish, and I only speak big Spanish, but it all made sense because it all fit with ours to a team. Right, right. And there's a purpose to that. There's a purpose that it's not con it's not just convenience. It's it's a unity, so that when people go to the Christian church wherever, it's saying the same stuff because it's worshiping the same God, right? Um, so so that's been around a long time. It's been rumored um, this this is sort of like the earliest inclination that we have about when it was used. So at this point, it wouldn't have been common practice. But the earliest date for its use is 136 AD. So just a little over 100 years after the death of Jesus. This was being used in in Christian worship, right? So uh, when Nagel was talking about that in the intro to the hymnal, that's what he's talking about with the rich heritage that we've been given. Um, so uh, let's see. So this is based on scripturally. It's based on the Christmas uh, greeting from the angels in Luke chapter 2, verse 14. Um, Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth with those whom he's pleased, peace among, peace among men, right? So Luke 2, 14. And it's also based on John's confession that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world in John 1, 29. So if you look at the words of the Gloria, those are the words that are sung, right? Um, those, those are the two main pieces to that. Um, so this transitions from the call to mercy and God's peace to glorifying him for the peace that he brings, right? So the Kyrie is, King is coming, Lord have mercy on us. Lord has had mercy on us, and now we praise, we praise the Lord, right? We sing his glory. Right, glory in excelsis means glory to God. Right, so we're we're adoring and praising God. Um, it's Trinity. It's a Trinitarian confession. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all present in there, and it's the final piece for the preparation of the arrival of Jesus when we open His Word. Right, the incarnational arrival of Jesus. Uh, it has a similar function to the Sanctus and the service of the sacrament in that regard. It's sort of the the joining together of God's people in one unified praise in, in anticipation of the coming of the King. Um, and the Sanctus is the one that's based off of the vision in Isaiah about the heavenly hosts singing this praise to God. And so that's why in the entrance, in the preface to that part, before we sing it, we say with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven. Okay? We say all the company of heaven. Who are we talking about? Yeah. Who's got a Christian parent or grandparent that's passed away? Right? When you sing the Sanctus, you're singing it with them. Because the altar is the meeting of heaven and earth. And that's why we call the Lord's Supper a foretaste of the feast to come. Right? It's a foretaste of the feast, the, the marriage feast of the Lamb and his kingdom, which we now get to participate in even before its full arrival through Jesus. Okay? Um, so that's truly the meeting of heaven and earth. Which is a nice segue into... Um, Oh, and the last part of the, the glory in Chelsea says, we're praising because the Holy One is present. And where the Holy One is present, that's where the temple is. Right? So the temple was in Jerusalem before because that's where God made his dwelling among his people. Where is his dwelling now? When two or more are gathered. When two or more are gathered in his name, right? So when his when his people gather and worship in spirit and in truth, he says to the woman at the well, right? Uh, and so that's what this is acknowledging. So now now this this building that we've gathered in, whether it's a library and there's 10 of us, or it's our sanctuary and there's 75, or it's a big church with 1,000, is now the temple of God because he's there. Okay. Um, the other one, and this is probably the most significant um, and widely accepted innovation of the Lutheran liturgy tradition is the worthy is Christ, or this is the feast. Um, that one is quite young. It's only 19th century that that is established. Um, and it was established to uh, highlight certain seasons of the church year. Um, so you'll understand that uh, we are not seeing this is the feast right now because what word is in it? Alleluia, right? We're not, we're not seeing Alleluia in Lent because it doesn't have its place here. But it's going to return because what is the feast? It's the feast of... What's the word in the song? Victory. The feast of victory. What victory are we celebrating in the feast? Victory over death. The victory over death. So it's typically, historically, was sung during Easter through Pentecost, 
And then at the times of Christmas, and that's pretty much it, the Gloria and Excelsis was sung the rest of the year. Okay. To high, and it was, it, was, it was made to highlight those seasons and elevate them. Okay. Um, the, the wording for worthy is Christ is based off of Revelation 5. And then also Revelation 19. So I want everybody to open up their Bibles to Revelation 5. We're going to read that. Just because I think it gives you a really nice visual to go along with that word. The words the next time you see them. So this Feast of Victory is basically, that's been what Christians have been gathering to celebrate ever since the church was established and the supper was established every week. So we're bearing witness and we're participating in the victory of Jesus. So if you don't know, Revelation's at the very end. What verse? We're, we're just going to do chapter 5. And I'm going to read it and I want you to kind of close your eyes as I'm reading it and picture the things that it's talking about. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within, and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. So, gives you a little bit of a different feel for singing that song. Um, that, you know, it's a, basically a form of what we're all going to be singing together for eternity in the heavenly kingdom. Okay, um, let's see. So uh, let's see, and it culminates, of course, the last line of the song culminates in an amen, just like Revelation 5 there, and then the king is here. Right? Uh, the worship commences. The last piece uh, that we'll go over today is the collect. So the collect is a form of a prayer, um, and the, it comes from the Latin word collectia. Um, it's just, essentially it means it gathers the thoughts of the people. So this is sort of the last piece of bringing us into one body, one spirit, one, one worship. Um, and it's bringing the people of God together in a prayer. And it's an intensely pastoral part because the, the prayer is not spoken by everyone. It's spoken by the pastor, but on behalf of the gathered assembly. So you had everybody kind of doing their individual thing, receiving their individual gift. Now we've been saying similar things and coming together. And now that unity is epitomized in a a prayer spoken on behalf of the people in one person, and that's the pastor. Um, so <clears throat> the prayer that begins, uh, it brings a pause to the entrance, entrance rite and prepares the congregation to receive God's presence in his word, and this shows up in Christian worship service starting in the 5th century. Um, so you can see how these all kind of developed around a similar time. Uh, it's a greeting in the Lord from the pastor that announces God's presence. Uh, also, again, in the preface before the Lord's Supper, this exchange is, is given. 
Um, and it follows the Jewish form of a prayer called a baraka, uh, which is a prayer of blessing. And it, it follows a certain form. You may have noticed when you read a collect, it always kind of has a similar structure. It begins with a greeting of God, then a statement of motive, then a petition, and a conclusion. So it, it may say, Holy Father, as you delivered your children out of the hands of the Egyptians, so deliver us from those who would seek to enslave us. Amen. Right? So, and when do you think that prayer might be in a service? Huh? At the end. No, it's at the beginning. But when, like, specifically if I'm praying about uh, being freed from en of enslavement, like you freed your people from Egypt, when might that be prayed? Okay, I'm not being specific enough. Not not when in the, not when in the service. When when would we say a prayer about that? Is when the reading has something to do with the, the Exodus, right? So the call to the day is orienting the thoughts and minds of the gathered people around the word that's going to be said. So it's usually related to the theme from the scriptures. Okay, so again, guided by the word there. Um, so it's meant to collect the thoughts and express them as one. And now, the king is here, and we enter into the service of the word, which is where we'll pick up next week. So, um, so this movement has brought us into the service of the word. So from the very beginning of the service, we've been looking towards the reading of the gospel. And we're going to talk about what all goes into that next week. Uh, any questions on anything we covered today? Yeah. That's a great question. Was there a group that decided on this order? Uh, the church is the group. So the stuff that you have been, this is one of the, the arguments that people will make why you shouldn't discard the service as it's been given to you is because it wasn't just a group of dudes that got together in a room and decided this was the way it was going to be. It's the living heritage of the church. So the stuff that's been going on for 1,700 years have been going on that way because the church has done it that way for 1700 years there's all kinds of other things that people try to put into the service but they're not around any longer the church are, are true, true believers in God yeah so if let's so we talked about this a little bit last week but if I say I want to do X in the service whatever it is new new song or new piece or whatever um, and we do it and let's say Ascension does it for two years and uh, no one else takes it up. We have to decide whether that innovation was a good one. So did it have value for us? If so, then maybe we'll keep doing it. If not, we should drop it. So typically the way, like the, uh, this is the feast, the, the worthy is Christ, came about officially through the church, um, through its uh, leadership and scholars. They deemed that it was biblical. It's based off of an old Catholic dignus, dignus Est Agnus, which is like just the worthiest Christ hymn based on Revelation 5, and it's just those sorts of words put together in a new way, um, and it became accepted by the church. If you try, if somebody, essentially the idea is the Holy Spirit is guiding the life of the church, so if somebody comes along and they try to, to establish something that's antithetical to Christ or against the word of God and put it in worship, it won't stay. Um, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to do this, is it helps you discern the ways in which you should determine what should be in your worship. Right? Should you go to a church that only sings and has a sermon but doesn't read the scriptures and have the Lord's Supper? Our estimation is you should not. Right? Not because they're evil and doing something terrible, but they're missing out on so much. Right? And so it should move us to want to really tell other people about the stuff that we're doing and the thing we're experiencing when we come to church because we're receiving all these amazing gifts from God. Um, and that, so the church collectively has sort of established these practices over a long period of time. I was just thinking, you know, like the Council of Nicaea. Yeah. There, the yeah, so there's, there's, um, there's some similarity there. So the Council of Nicaea does develop the creed. Uh, that's a direct response to heretical teachings going on in the church that they wanted to... Um, confront, right? Just like if something in culture happens that's really significant, we want to hear from the, the office of the synodical president, like, are we going to say something about this? We should say something about it. We have something to say, right? Um, so that, that's that. But also you would have in councils probably 
where that's probably where they would deal with if somebody's trying to do something new that isn't good, right, and true, they would say we shouldn't encourage this practice in our church. So there's always an element of that there, but it's always undergirded by the idea that the church is being guided by, and really the one in control of it is God, you know, via the Holy Spirit. So good question. Any others? All right. Well, let's close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, have a great week.